Hey everyone, welcome. Last week, Politico landed a bombshell news story. Someone leaked the draft of a Supreme Court opinion that would have the effect of striking down Roe versus Wade. It was a huge story and it got a lot of people riled up. So we invited Brian Bailey to join us in the studio to talk about all of it. Brian is an attorney and an elder here at Trinity Reformed Church. And if I may say, he's precisely the kind of Christian man you want to listen to on the question of abortion in these United States. So my guests today are Brian Bailey and Tim Bailey. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds podcast. I'm here with Tim Bailey. How are you doing, Tim? I'm good. Lucas. Good to have you. And we have a special guest today, and that is Brian Bailey. He has worked under two administrations here in the state of Indiana, under both Mitch Daniels and Mike Pence. He was officially the budget director of the state of Indiana from 2013 through the beginning of 2017 when Governor Pence left office to become the vice president. He now has his own law practice here in Bloomington, and we are delighted to have him in the studio with us today. Brian Bailey, how are you? Doing great, Lucas. It's great to be here with you. We are delighted to have you. So thank you for coming in today. Why are we here today? We're here because a draft opinion of the Supreme Court was leaked earlier this week, and it made huge news. It knocked uh, Ukraine off the front page of all the newspapers and put Roe v. Wade on the front page. And we know that it's legit because the Supreme Court has actually been all up in arms about it and has initiated an investigation into it and to figure out who leaked it and why and all that sort of stuff. And why is this opinion so electric? Well, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that if this opinion stands, it will have the effect of overturning Roe v. Wade. Is it really that simple? It, it is that simple, and they're very clear that that's exactly what the opinion does, that it overturns Roe v. Wade, and it overturns a 1992 decision that itself had upheld Roe v. Wade. And it makes clear that any legislation that restricts abortion is going to be reviewed under a really light test called a rational basis review. Hmm. And so no longer are, are state laws that restrict or limit abortion subject to what's called strict scrutiny. And what's, what strict scrutiny means is that these, these cases where you have state laws that are in any way limiting or restricting abortion, right. they, they have to pass a pretty high hurdle uh, before those laws are allowed to continue to exist. Okay. Okay. Because of Roe v. Wade. That's right. Okay. Okay. So it's a much lower bar to pass restrictive laws that that restrict to pass laws that restrict abortion uh, if this if decision it, holds if that's the correct decision holds wow and so naturally people are losing their minds all over the country i mean i've seen i've seen things on social media where you got people smashing uh, uh, uh pregnancy centers which i mean we christians and evangelicals in particular have worked hard for a long time to make pregnancy centers the sort of gentle face of the pro-life anti-abortion movement. As if there's any face that isn't gentle. In other words, when what is being done is the protection right. of a human being bearing the image of God, 
the idea that we would be so on the defensive that we would think that somehow crisis pregnancy centers are more gentle right. than sidewalk picketing. I mean, you could make a case that sidewalk picketing and calling out to the people who have paid for the murder of their child is much gentler because it's much more immediate and acutely uh, pertaining to the thing going on in front of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in other words, the gentle all has regard to the way that a woman who is pregnant will perceive it. And that's right. the entire problem with the abortion issue. Right. Well, do you, do you understand what I'm saying, Brian? Yeah, I think so. Because we're, we need a message really to proclaim the truth to men and women, and especially men and their duty to defend the unborn and their wives. And, and as long as we continue to make decisions about how we approach witnessing to the horror of bloodshed and try to make it play in Peoria, then we'll be using words like gentle to refer mm -hmm. to this face or that face of the opposition to killing people. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I don't know what an analogous thing would be is, you know. Well, you could say, I mean, the, the thing that's often used in comparison is slavery. So what is the sl gentle face of opposition to slavery in this country? I don't know what it would have been back then. Well, but. back then it would have actually been colonizing. Hmm. It would have been buying slaves out of slavery and hmm. sending them back to Africa, to Liberia. And that's why William, Joy, William Lloyd Garrison, and actually in the basement of Park Street Church, the evangelical church on the Boston Common, uh, that's where the beginning of the abolitionist movement began because he said, I no longer am going to be compromised by colonization but from this point on no union with slaveholders mm -hmm. yeah. so i that's probably the analogous thing mm -hmm. well my point in bringing it up is simply that the places where the pro-life movement has tried to avoid direct confrontation yeah that's yeah. Um, i'm not faulting the way yeah. you said it because of course that's why guys like kurt young and uh, mrs schaefer uh, francis's wife and uh you know, just a whole host of evangelicals have been gaga for crisis. Uh, Marvin Alasky would be, Marvin and Susan would be some of the best. Mm -hmm. You know, they just gaga about crisis pregnancy centers mm -hmm. because they don't want to go anywhere near mm -hmm. anything that is not primarily focused on being nice to women with crisis pregnancies. Mm -hmm. But we're now in a whole different area of, of fighting because now. It is on the table with every state of the union. If this goes through, and I think we all think it's going to. Well, I want to get there. Because, yeah, go ahead. Um, so people are losing their minds all over the place. And this decision, or this this leak, I should say, uh, prompted me to start listening to a book called The Brethren. Do you know about this book? Have yeah. you read it? No, I haven't read it. Okay. But I'm well, it's, it. it's by Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong, and it's all about the inner workings of the Supreme Court. And I haven't gotten too far into it, but it is fascinating. And the thing that's very clear is the paramount importance of secrecy <laughs> and confidentiality. In, I mean, they have special rooms that they go to where there's literally nobody present to take votes and this kind of thing. And so this is a huge deal. I mean, I, my, what I've seen I, on the internet, so I don't know how accurate it is, is that, that opinions have been leaked before, ahead of, ahead of time, before they were officially released, but it's exceedingly rare. And um, 
do before we jump into the substance of the opinion, do either of you care to speculate at all about why the leak happened or who might have leaked it or anything like that? <laughs> Brian doesn't usually speculate about things. <laughs> so I'm sort of laughing because I'm thinking he's probably not going to be interested. What do you think? Can we stop for a second? I think we should stop here and we should have Brian forced to say some things about his life because of how humble he is. Nobody knows these things. So, Brian, would you please tell them about your position at Maurer School of Law, it's called. No, I don't think it was called that then. That's right. It, it became Maurer later. I, I was editor-in-chief of the Indiana Law Journal. And in part, that has helped me appreciate opinions like this mm. because there is so much that goes into what we grunts as uh, second-year students did for law journals, just site checking. Hmm. And today, I don't know how they do it today. When I was in law school, we were going to books and we were opening hmm. books wow. that <laughs> authors would cite statutes, cases. Sometimes I had to go to different libraries because wow. they, they were citing some non-legal source. And our job was to proofread meticulously and catch everything before we handed that assignment to the editor, wow. the managing editor, and then the managing managing editor would would collate all of our work uh-huh. on those. And so I've been really pleased with this opinion because there's so much useful history hmm. that's cited in here. And so even if this first draft doesn't make it to whatever third draft or fourth right. final draft, there's a lot of a lot of good in what's what's been leaked and the content here. Another thing I did or I thought of as I was reviewing this opinion Mm -hmm. was to look for, has anyone found mistakes in it? And so what I did was Google mistakes and leaked the leaked Alito Mm -hmm, opinion. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I didn't find, I only did, I scrolled down two pages on the Google search results, but it's all about the, the enormity right. from the perspective of the media on this decision. I did actually see one article that was a forensic analysis of like the document itself. It was kind of interesting. Anyway, go ahead. Sure. It's, but there was, there's no one yet mm-hmm. that has criticized substantively. I'm not, I mean, I don't mean the position and the overall holding. I mean, substantively what it says about Roe. Mm what it says about Casey, the, the, the arguments that it marshals. The, the facts of the case, the, all of that. Yeah, and, and there aren't really many facts to this case. They're looking at a statute that was adopted by the state of Mississippi that had criminalized abortion after 15 weeks. Mm-hmm. Unless there's a severe fetal abnormality or a medical emergency. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's about the most facts you get Hmm. is what's in that legislation, including some of the findings of the legislature that are cited in here. And I think used to really good effect. Hmm. So you've bypassed the second half of my question. If I were listening to this, I would want to know who is this guy? I mean, attorneys are a dime a dozen, or (laughs) maybe I should say a million dollars a dozen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Depends on how many hours they bill. Yeah. Well. <laughs> and so would you please tell what happened in 1990, 
one or two, 81 or two here in Bloomington. Sure. And then your appointment to the clerkship and that. Yes. So in, I I believe it was 1982, there was a a baby born here in Bloomington, a baby boy born here in Bloomington who had um, some Spina def- bifida or something, or it, it, no, an esophageal blockage. Yeah, and i I think I think the baby was he had a genetic defect. Yes. I can't remember if it was Downs or 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 spina bifida, but his parents decided they wanted to starve him to death. Mm-hmm. And this is not an abortion. This is literally the baby has been born. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yes, and someone at the hospital basically called the cops or called the prosecutor, and the prosecutor brought a basically went to court to try to get custody of the baby and protect the baby. Hmm. And the judge that I ended up clerking for John Baker was the judge. He was a trial court judge in Hmm. 1982 that got that case assigned to him. And ultimately he decided with the parents that they could starve the baby. Wow. Named baby doe. And that case went to the Indiana Supreme court. They tried to appeal it to the Indiana Supreme Court. I think they tried to appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And the, either the appeals were denied or just dealt with quickly in such a way that his decision was allowed to stand. Wow. And when I – I should say when I applied for that clerkship, I had no idea right. of any of this. Mm. In fact, it's, it's, I was thinking about this earlier. So I'm I bat a thousand on judicial clerkship applications because I that was the only one I applied to. Huh. Wow. And it came at a weird time. I'll just talk a little bit bit more about my my background. It came at a weird time in my life. I had had I was a new Christian essentially, mm-hmm. and wanting to continue to be part of the church. Or, what what year was this? Roughly? This would have been 1999. Okay. And I had a job in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. I thought this would be good to help me stay mm-hmm. in Bloomington a little bit longer, and it would be good training. Mm-hmm. And a number of, a couple of people at the law school, including one of the deans, said, "I, I think you should apply, mm-hmm. you know, to this clerkship." And so that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. While I was clerking with Judge Baker and had had learned about his decision one day i confronted him Hmm. i'm going to insert myself here so brian's a new christian and a man of good conscience uh he would be what uh is said about uh which disciple is it that he is a man without guile that's brian and i remember very specifically brian coming and the reason i want him to go through this is that this is not uh, a dalliance on brian's part this matter of life. Mm. This has been the thing that he has most desired to give his practice of law to. It just hasn't worked out that he's been able to come up with the cases. ADF is not uh, here in Bloomington or here in Indianapolis, and so it hasn't worked out for him to do First Amendment litigation, constitutional, Mm. but that's what his heart is is in and what his reading is. Mm. And so I want you to know that. And I remember the day that I got a call from him clerking for Baker, and he said he had just been reading through the case history of Baby Doe, hmm. and he had discovered that his judge was the judge that presided over the hearing at the hospital that assured the baby's fate hmm. of starving to death. Wow. 
And I remember Brian saying to me on the phone, I remember this very clearly, I have to go in and I have to confront him about this. Now, Brian is a very respectful man. He's a gentleman. Um, and so we prayed on the phone and he went in. And I want you to tell about that confrontation if you're willing, because the immediate result really placed your career in jeopardy. Sure. So I went in and I, I started with permission to speak freely hmm. and he said, sure. So he knew something's up. Something was up. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't remember the, the exact words of the conversation, but I told him that what he had done was wrong mm. with baby doe. And at that point, it could have gone, I could have gone, <laughs> let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I could have been gone. And <laughs> through through God's work, I I stayed on. Huh. And he invited me back but for, he a, called a for another year. He called a meeting of, of his clerks. Do you remember that? And he was furious. And his attack was not on you directly but it was on either the supreme court or lawyers because it was him letting loose his emotional burden and that happened afterwards and it was really because of do you remember that meeting i, I remember him being very angry yeah with me well i thought he was angry with me and um just not knowing what was going to happen and, and how to respond to it. Hmm. And so shortly after that, we had another judge on that appellate court, uh, the Court of Appeals, start coming to church. He came for about two years. And he had come to faith as a result of a life situation that was very difficult. Um, and I bring that up because he was offered a position on the Supreme Court by a governor, and he told me that he turned it down because the Supreme Court doesn't make law. But the appellate court makes law. And so people on the appellate court are writing opinions constantly. And so I want people to know that, that that's the appellate court you worked on. And so you were working on opinions and briefs and stuff like that all the time, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I was there for three years. And by the time I was done with it, I, was, I had principal drafting responsibility for 160 opinions. Hmm. Wow. And Judge Baker was very, very productive judge. He, he wanted to produce. So he wanted, he felt strongly about justice delayed, justice denied. And mm. he did not like backlogs. And if he got through whatever had been allotted to him, he would start knocking on other judges' doors and trying to get their excess. Wow. And the one judge that wouldn't give it to him was Ted, probably. I could, I could believe that. Yeah, I could yeah. believe that. Ted would never give anybody else his privilege. He loved <laughs> to write. So then he re-upped you. Would you explain the significance of that? And then I think we can get off this. Sure. So most judicial clerkships are one or two years. And I had signed on for two years with them. Is this, now, I, I'm speaking as someone that maybe doesn't understand the, um, the court system too well. Is this like a state court yes. or is it a federal? It's a state court. Okay. So it's, it's the intermediate mm. court of appeals or appellate court. So it's what's between 
your Monroe County trial court judge yep. in the Indiana Supreme Court. Okay. okay. There, there are 15 appellate judges and in most, the state of Indiana. Yes. Okay. There are some senior judges too, but I think they handle maybe 10% or 20% of what they used to do as a, a full-time judge. Hmm. Each judge has three clerk, three law clerks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, typically these are one or two year deals and I got invited back wow. for a third year. Wow. And it was, I think part of it is you have someone that's producing yeah. who's been, who's had two years of experience. It's kind of hard to let, right. let, let go. And I had a willingness to do it because it would help me stay with my church mm. in the area mm. for a little while longer. So did you enjoy working with them? I did. I, I learned a lot. He, I, I was thinking about this the other day. One, one opinion I drafted, I, I brought it into him. And he said, looks like you ran out of gas at the end. (laughs) 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 And yeah, I had to run out of gas at the end. And I I appreciated it because it's something between practice, the practice of law Hmm. and scholarship. Hmm. And I think it's probably a perfect blend of those two things because you're dealing with real concrete, difficult cases, Mm -hmm. but you have the, the luxury of time mm-hmm. to think about it, to write about it, to research it. And so I loved that. Mm. My, my favorite, my, the chambers for this judge was in the state house. And my favorite place in the state house is the Supreme court law library. Mm. It's not the court, not the chambers, not the general assembly, not the governor's office. It's the law library. I just, I love being around the history. Hmm. I had a cousin who uh, we were very close and he worked for a number of years in Pittsburgh to be counsel to a particular union. I forget. So anything that the union members needed, he would handle. Then he took a position at clerking for a federal judge. And I asked him, uh, and then after that, he was, he became the uh, administrative clerk to the chief justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So he ran the court administratively. And I asked him once whether which he liked better, practicing law or being a, a clerk. And he said, oh, I love being a clerk. And I said, really, why? And he said, because I get paid to tell the truth. And that was an awakening moment for me about mm-hmm. the practice of law. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. I, as I've been listening to this book, The Brethren, I mean, it's interesting given the recent leak and the idea that it's probably a clerk or possibly at least a clerk that leaked it. But those clerks really very significant. And the time period that it's talking about is the Warren Burger. And it's kind of a little confusing because there's Warren Burger and then something Warren. Earl Warren. Earl Warren. They're like right at the same time, yeah. right? <laughs> okay. So it's got a little bit hard to keep track, but Warren Burger became the, the chief justice, right? That's right. Okay. Well, Nixon appointed Nixon appointed him, and he told his clerks that they weren't allowed to talk to the other clerks anymore because he was wanted to be secret or something like that. So, and that was a real downer for them because part of the fun of the job was, you know, talking with the other clerks, figuring stuff out, and it was interesting to peer into a little bit the life of a clerk 
in the Supreme Court. So my question before we got off on that was, do you care to speculate about why this opinion was leaked or how or who would have would have done it? I mean, I think it was leaked to a, a news organization. We know that. but I think we can say it's more probable and not it was leaked to stop five justices from voting for it. What, who did it, whether it was a clerk or an administrative staff member, I don't, I don't know. Could, mm. I mean, it, it could be. Um, but I think, I think the motive, given what the opinion does, is more probable and not to stop it. That has been my assumption, but it's interesting that the article I was reading that was a forensic analysis of the document guessed that it was actually leaked by a conservative clerk because he sensed that, that the majority was actually breaking apart and somehow trying to force the hand of, of the justices. I don't know. I've tended not to think it's a conservative because they're so safe. Hmm. They don't do things to create controversy. They, they try to avoid controversy <laughs> as much as possible. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think. One would never know, would one, whether Brian... <laughs> was actually being critical of anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, That's fascinating. I I mean, I think you're right. What am I going to say? I think you're right. That's an observation I didn't think of. Do you think it's actually possible that the decision will hold by the time the official opinion comes out? Yeah, I do think it's possible. I think that if there were five votes and they had basic agreement on the arguments and the outline of of this majority opinion, they, they're taking their lumps now hmm. and the, they knew the banshees were going to be screaming. Right. They had to know there was n- never any secret about that. Mm-hmm. And so I think it'll hold, I think mm. they'll hold unless something happened before this. So we have a draft that's dated February 10th and it says first draft, mm-hmm. but we don't know what the, what the most recent version is. Right. So you st- said this earlier in the podcast, but your opinion is what in terms of the effect that this will have on abortion laws in this country? So this opinion is taking this controversy out of the federal court system. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's pushing it back to the state capitals, mm-hmm. the state legislatures, and so they they keep what's called a rational basis review. Mm-hmm. But that's basically all they are checking for is if the legislature was smoking dope <laughs> when they passed the law. <laughs> and if the legislature wasn't smoking dope, then it's pretty much going to pass. Uh-huh. It's, it's really light. Really low, low bar. Yep. Uh, okay. What does this mean for pro-life work in this country? How does it change or... Well, let's say right out of the gate that we are overjoyed, Mm. that this is a gift from God. I was reading this morning in Daniel how Nebuchadnezzar was disciplined by God, made into a a grass-eating animal Mm. for seven periods of time, uh, which I don't know, I've always thought they were seven years. But anyhow, and the reason is that he refused to acknowledge that God is sovereign Hmm. over authority and that his authority had been given him by God. Hmm. That's the explicit reason. 
And the election of Donald Trump, this release of this first revision of the brief reversing Roe v. Wade and the fall of the Iron Curtain are the three things in my life that have left me incredulous. <laughs> absolutely incredulous smacked. There, there have been only three well four and that was when mary lee agreed i to knew you were me. gonna say that <laughs> you knew i was gonna say yeah, that yeah. that was that was the happiest day of my yeah, life yeah yeah <laughs> but anyhow um and so we are thankful and it is a huge step forward going to foundational things like the fact that will there be next year in january a march of life hmm. in Washington, D.C.? Or will there be 50 on the capitals of the states? Oh, yeah. And so we want to start by saying we are grateful to God. It is obvious in this case that God holds uh, the kings as rivers of water in his hands, and he does what he likes to do with them. Hmm. And it's so important that we recognize this now when Christians are so furious at civil authorities and act and speak as if it's all up to them to hold back tyranny and it's all up to them to write the new constitution and to protect the old constitution. Mm -hmm. Christians have put no hope in the kingdom of God anymore, but all in the kingdom of man during it's, COVID. I was reading Lamentations last night in devotions for my kids and it's really- Not for you. Yeah, not for me. <laughs> Um, because you're such a cheerful with my man. kids <laughs> but brie she just had another <laughs> she needed day. to be she more needed, depressed yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that's true <laughs> and it's really striking how it he talks about the foreign army crushing you know harming the people of god but it's clearly god's agency it's just always his yeah agency. yeah and we're recognizing that when we have the wonderful american exceptionalism which any idiot knows is true whether or not you call it a christian nation you know you can debate about that but america is just gorgeous in its history in so many ways mm. um and so you want to say god blessed america mm -hmm. and god has but we don't want to say it when it comes to our bloodlust mm -hmm. against babies right. in their womb of their mothers. And when it comes to sodomitic marriage and when it comes to transitional people, I, you know, I was walking into the airport bathroom and a woman was coming out. And before I realized that you go in one door and then split two ways, <laughs> I was realizing that soon I'll be in a bathroom where a woman is using it. So I want to say we are thankful to God for this. It's mm -hmm. a wonderful news. It has been way too long in coming. Mm -hmm. It's going to be interesting to see what Roberts, that precious man, does. Mm -hmm. You want to say anything about that? Because then I have one other thing to say. Yeah, I, I want to, I think related to gratitude, or part of the gratitude is this opinion, this majority opinion, it actually answers a question that every Christian asks himself. And that is, am I crazy <laughs> or is the world crazy? Yeah. And this, this opinion, I mean, things that, that Christians have been arguing for decades, this commends those arguments mm. and affirms them. 
in a way that's it's so sweet. It's so sweet. There, there's a a 1961 George Georgetown Law Journal article that Pastor Tim has circulated uh, to a number of us that are are working on a statement. He circulate he's he circulated that to Adam and me, Adam's our friend Adam Spady, years ago, and th- and this opinion cites that really, and it's just so sweet to uh, see that to sweet. see that work. Wow. It was given me by the man's son, who was a Jesuit priest that I was very close to. He taught philosophy at Loyola. And one day he sent me a copy of the Georgetown Law Review, Law Journal. I can't remember which it is. And he was the founding editor of that, and he Hmm. was on the American Law Institute. Could you explain that just for a second? Sure. So the American Law Institute is a, a prestigious legal organization that tries to or its its purpose is to improve the law well in the case of abortion and homosexual marriage it's deformed the law Hmm. anyway so he he was part of that i don't know what his role his dad had been in the ali he saw that they were promoting the legalization of abortion and so he produced I think it was two articles that are bound in that binding. One is the medical aspects of abortion. One is the legal aspects. And it is a stunning piece of work hmm. done, what, in the late 60s? Wow. What, one was at the end of 1960, and the other one was at the beginning of 1961. Okay, 61. Wow. That's so at amazing. that point, it was very clear, and the states all started to change their laws. Hmm. So 73 was when the Supreme Court felt that it finally had the critical mass to be able to do the the deconstruction on the national level. Mm. Anyhow, this guy's name was Eugene Quay. His son's name was Paul Quay. And his wife's name, I can't remember her name, but she was a journalist with uh, the Chicago Daily News. And she, for years, was writing against uh, infanticide. Very godly Roman Catholic family. So that's who Brian is saying the father was cited in this case, which boggled my mind. It was so sweet. Hmm. But you skipped over Justice Roberts. Yeah, it's my speculation avoidance. (laughs) (laughs) But okay. So I I hadn't realized this until I I read this opinion, but apparently there was a 2018 abortion-related decision. And it looks like he, I haven't gone back to look at that case but he wasn't with the the four dissenters that I think you know, would have upheld the law or would have overturned Roe. I'm not sure. But in, in an unrelated case in 2018, it, basically this case is about retail sales tax. Hmm. So the retail sales tax case, it's a, the South Dakota versus Wayfair. Uh-huh. And it says that if an e-tailer send something, you know, it's ordered through e-commerce. Yep. Yep. Doesn't have a warehouse, doesn't have any connection to the state. That 2018 decision says we can tax you. Huh. And so it, it over- if, if the purchaser is in the state of South Dakota, South Dakota. Yeah. Okay. That, that Wayfair is obligated to remit the hmm. sales tax, collect it from the taxpayer, remit it to the state of South Dakota. Okay. Well, justice Robert, chief justice Roberts in that decision wrote a dissent okay and he part of his reasoning is that that issue was decided in 1967 
not e not e commerce, but mail order mm. commerce. Mm-hmm. Decided again in the Quill case in 1992. There's there have been reliance issues. We have two cases that have been on point where the issue has been confronted directly and stare decisis. And I thought that sounds like what he's going to say. Mm-hmm. The next major confrontation with Roe is, is going to produce that vote. So that's my my thinking, and, and just based on other rulings that he's made where he's upholding the Affordable Care Act okay. as a tax. I'm sorry. I, I, I was lost there for a second, so let me just f- state it back sure. to you to, to make sure I understand. Stare decisis is the idea that they stick with the precedent. That's right. It, it means to stand by decisions mm-hmm. in Latin. And, and what it means is if a case is decided an issue, we're not going to reopen or revisit that decision. Okay. We're, we're just going to cite that as the authority. So you think that his decision on that North, North South Dakota case South Dakota. was uh, indica- indicative of his general affect, his general opinion is going to be, if something's already been decided, we're not going to open it up again. And Yes, it, indicative or forecast okay. yeah yeah he's, he's kind of letting us know interesting <laughs> where he's going and so would you say one other thing is would you open up the laughable statement in the case of what was it casey mm. about how the credibility of this court is at stake with us standing on starry decisis yeah so this leaked opinion deconstructs both row mm from 73 and Casey mm-hmm. from 92. And it, it talks about the argument that the court was relying on or trying to protect its institutional integrity and authority mm-hmm. in the, in the Casey decision. And I, I remember the late Joe Sobran saying it was like a referee in a prize fight declaring himself the winner <laughs> irrespective of the other party's claims. <laughs> And uh, that's yes. Uh, oh goodness! And that's that's. By the Casey. way, Brian and I and Charlie Dugdale drove across the country when Joe died, and went to his wake. Yep. So that's some indication of who our heroes are. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <clears throat> I haven't done that for any evangelical. <laughs> <laughs> I only do it for Roman Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Uh, well, it's. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about Roman Catholics, and I think about my first constitutional law professor was an undergraduate professor of philosophy and political science, and he was a Roman Catholic. Hmm. And I took constitutional law my second semester of my senior year, and I remember him leading us into a room where he gave a lecture. Hmm. And that was the only... day of of that class that he gave a lecture because the rest of it was his Socratic Mm. teaching of us asking us questions about cases that we read. Yeah. But he was very clear. He, um, he asked the class where I was not a Christian then. So I, I wasn't thinking in Christian categories or with, with wisdom, Christian wisdom. He asked, well, what's, what's the root of Western law? Hmm. And so, of course, the, I'm a classical studies guy. And so, of course, what am I going to say? Well, it's Ro- the Roman law. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, it's Christianity. Hmm. And I, re- I remember his 
defense of a pro-life position opposed Roe versus Wade. I think he called it murder. Hmm. In class. Yeah. And I thought, wow, what courage, Hmm. what courage. And that started me down a a whole road. Wow. That I'm, I'm thankful for that man. Hmm. What was his name? Ed McLean. God bless Ed McLean. I wanted to say one other thing though, and that is, I don't want to take away from our gratitude and for thankfulness to God. Um, I can remember with Casey, we were all over the country waiting with bated breath. We really thought that it was 50-50 that that would overturn Roe v. Wade. I think everybody did. But it's the only other time that there has been any thought in my judgment. Can we just open up for people who don't know Casey? I mean, Roe v. Wade, 1973, right to privacy, that a woman had the right to abortion. I think people generally know what that's about. But what is the what was the Casey? If you don't mind me interrupting, just real briefly. So the Casey decision had before it three provisions of a Pennsylvania law mm-hmm. that restricted ab- abortion in some way. I think one was a 24-hour waiting period. Mm. And there were two two other restrictions. And the court actually, and the Casey decision, allowed those restrictions to remain in law. But also affirmed Roe versus, uh, affirmed the right to abortion Hmm. as this leaked opinion deconstructs Casey jettisoned the trimester framework that had had been the butt of a lot of scholarly, I don't want to say jokes, but just no one, no one respected Roe versus Wade on any level. Yes. Casey, jettisons the trimester framework and and as the the leaked opinion deconstructs it doesn't even try to defend it Hmm. the only thing it wants to defend is the right to abortion and it promulgates this new standard called the undue burden standard Hmm. that this leaked opinion also deconstructs as hopelessly hopelessly impossible to apply Mm-hmm. When, when does a burden do? When is it undo? The kind of tests that it, that it formulated. But at the end of the day, what was important in Casey was that you had five justices, including, I think, three Republican appointees affirming it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor and uh, Anthony Kennedy, who were Reagan appointees. And, and this was Christians, conservatives have been Encouraged to vote Republican mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because we got to get justices in yep. place who are going to overturn it. And that I think that was part of the staggering disappointment was mm-hmm. all the work that had gone into that. And, and that's where Joe Sobern's statement, fool me once, shame on me, or shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, fool me three times. I'm, I'm a, a Republican, Republican. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you know. So you were saying. I well, I just want to get at the issue that – This, if it comes through, is not all that we think it is because it is a betrayal of the Constitution on the most fundamental level. Well, so Brian was actually talking about that before you got here. You were saying, Brian, earlier what you thought was the weakness. If there was, and I asked you if there was one thing you thought you would change about this opinion if you could. 
sure that the one thing I would change about the opinion would, would be to declare that the unborn have a right to life. <laughs> yeah, like, uh. and that it's not up for the state, the states to decide that their def- most defenseless citizens can be killed. Yeah, right to life. I mean, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And I cut you off again, Tim. But that is that essentially where you're. Where yeah, you were I just headed? want. Yeah, I mean, I want people to realize that this could have been a decision that actually said what is true, and it was said by the German Constitutional Court in 1975. Mm. So in 1975, following Roe v. Wade, the German Constitutional Court, their Supreme Court, issued a ruling that the mother's convenience, health, all these things, uh, and, and I shouldn't just, I shouldn't say life, I should say that even serious reasons that the mother might have to want to kill her unborn child, that the unborn child had a right to life, mm. and that the mother's rights did not displace the child's life. And it was so interesting. I have a copy of that in my library, that opinion. Mm. And it's so interesting because here you have post-Nazi Germany, Mm-hmm. And they stand two years after the U.S. Supreme Court gives in. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't have anything more to say about that. I, well, I, d- does it is possible that they could have done that? I think that's what people won't yeah. realize. Yes, yes absolutely. Okay. So, does this opinion, if again, if it goes into effect, does that mean that states could declare right to life laws? Yes. Okay. In other words, total bans on abortion. Yes. Wow. Because this this opinion says Roe and Casey are no longer governing authority. Hmm. Rational basis test is, is all that has to be sur- surpassed or surmounted to well, survive. So again, without taking away any of our thankfulness and gratitude for this law, it's interesting that essentially what the court, the Supreme Court has said is that the states now get to decide if if someone has a right to life, <laughs> which on the face of yeah, it, but that's not what that's not what they're saying. They're saying that legislation about abortion properly by the Tenth Amendment sits in the local state, right? Yes, that it's a matter of they can make restrictions. Mm-hmm. That that's that's the how they're phrasing it. And so the right to life is still not on the table. Uh, I mean, it's the context. But this statement, this this this, this opinion. opinion, is not lifting up the right to life. Is well, that that's kind of where I was headed because my my question again, I don't want to see the cloud. Oh, we the- have to. <laughs> I mean, absolutely, because yeah, because listen, the one thing I want to say today is it is absolutely essential that the church now give up almost any other political action opinion writing, speaking, and focus on their states hmm. and protecting the lives of unborn children. The only thing that I think is actually more important than that is free speech right now. And I, I'm not going to go into explaining why I think free speech is more important. That is under unbelievably intense attack. Now. Oh, yeah. Our ability, you know, the book, our book, uh, The Grace of Shame, has been censored by Amazon, mm-hmm. and Amazon has a monopoly on publishing now. Mm-hmm. It's a monopoly. If Tyndale House, our family's company, wants to sell books, 
They sell, I don't know, I want to say 40, 50% of their books they sell through Amazon. Wow, Tindale amazing. And so we have to be very, very aware of the fact that with this new truth, uh, what are they calling it? The truth <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the Ministry of Truth. Are they actually calling it <laughs> well, that? disinformation. Yeah, Ministry yeah, of yeah, Disinformation yeah. Yeah, is right. now under the Homeland Security. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. It's just Crazy. like, but Christian speech of scripture now is illegal in America. Mm. And when I say illegal, what I mean to say is all the laws of the country support silencing scripture, mm. silencing it on, on transitioning, silencing it on homosexuality, silencing it on uh, all kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that I'm actually more concerned about that than the laws of individual states because in the beginning was the word, and words are even more important than life to Christians, hmm. because the the word is Jesus Christ. If we are not able to speak the law and gospel of Scripture, and that is what has been being uh, taken away from Christians over the last ten and twenty years. Yeah. But setting that to the side, now is the time for Christians to realize that they're this moment creating expectations and and fears and possibilities in all of their legislators' minds mm -hmm. and hearts. Mm -hmm. They're in your church, the judges, the yep. governor. Yep. This is all subsidiarity. This is the local level. And so we need to be very aware of what is at stake now assuming this goes through, and what Christians can do, and what is likely to be done if Christians do not speak up and declare their commitments. You're talking about the speech issue or about the abortion issue? No, I'm couldn't... just saying speech, I think, is even more important. But then forget I said that. If you don't agree, that's fine. But this must be what Christians are absolutely focused on in social media, in letters to the editor, in speeches given, in rallies, mm -hmm. in who they vote for, and what questions they ask candidates on oh, every yeah. level now. The, you, this issue of abortion. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's exactly right. What it was clear is that now our local politicians, I mean, we can put pressure on them to say, okay, in the state of Indiana, we want to protect life. And we have an opportunity now to see whether they are actually just using that as a platform or if they are actually committed to, to doing it. Absolutely. So now, now is the time where there should be laws. And for years, I wish that they hadn't taken them off the books just because Roe versus Wade. Hmm. I, they should have left them on the books. Hmm. But now is, now is the time when they mm -hmm. have to put them back on the books and make sure that it's criminalized. Hmm. That abortion's criminalized. So that issue of criminalization, of course, there is no pro-life organization talking in front of a camera that wants to talk about the criminalization of abortion. Nobody. Nobody wants to do that. I mean, I, I was watching a clip, and the, the, the pro-life person was being commended, you know, in the comments for how she answered in a, just a gentle good way clear but clear and firm uh, about you know life from beginning of conception on but the person interviewing was uh, some liberal media news station pushing so are you saying you know the criminal that 
they should be criminally prosecuted if, if and and she would not answer the question she would not answer the question mm. one thing that is fascinating about this pdf i have in front of me no yeah. you guys can't see it in in the audience but i have this 98 page document that's the leaked opinion but only 58 pages are the text the rest of it is an abstract or summary of state laws that have prohibited abortion, crim- criminalized abortion, hmm. going back to the 1800s. And I think the point is states have this authority. They've hmm. always had this authority. And Roe interrupted hmm. and, and suppressed that authority. Hmm. But now it's those uh, restrictions and chains are off the legislature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What we have to understand is that when we went through, the opinion was laughable, and it was laughable. It was laughable even on the uh, claims that it made. I have in front of me an abstract from a piece uh, on PubMed where they say, in the 15 months before Roe, five state courts said that their abortion laws were constitutional, and they said this was quote these laws were quote intended to protect the lives of unborn children unquote. And yet in Roe v. Wade, the court stated that the state courts, quote unquote, focused on the state's interest in protecting the health of the mother. Okay. And so you see the difference between protecting the life of the unborn child and protecting the the health of the mother. Mm -hmm. And I have seen a lot of news pieces, opinion pieces now talking all about the danger of illegal abortions. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a joke. Mm-hmm. That danger, and I'm not saying it's a joke when women do die from abortions. They do die. Mm-hmm. They have died every single year from legal abortions under Roe v. Wade. So no death of a mother having an abortion is a joke. But what is a joke is people raising this as a specter that we should be petrified about because of the reversal of Roe v. Wade. The death of mothers is partly a function of the age of the mother at the time she has an abortion that has a very high correlation to the risk to the mother of puncturing her Hmm. and of her getting infections and of her hemorrhaging and stuff. But largely the back alley abortionist and illegal abortions ended with the coming in of antibiotics. Hmm. I talked to an epidemiologist at the CDC 25 years ago and asked him what his judgment was about the number of deaths due to illegal abortions before Roe versus after Roe. And he said, well, we actually keep statistics on this. And he told me, they, I think that year they had had like 21 deaths from abortions hmm. that were legal. In, okay. in which in Indiana? No, no, no. This was national. This is a center for disease oh, okay. control. I talked to an epidemiologist. I called and asked, and I got one. <laughs> you know? And so we need to be aware that the arguments have even gone to the point of whether or not there should be laws that protect an unborn child. And I, what I just read shows that. Mm. No, no, no. Those laws, Roe v. Wade, those laws were to protect the health of the mother. And, you know, no, actually, they were to protect the unborn child. And of course, that's going to be one of the fault lines with every every state mm-hmm. is whether or not the state laws that are passed are aimed at protecting the life of the unborn mm. or simply trying to adjudicate some spectrum, some continuum of relative risk mm-hmm. and you know stuff like that and attribute value to an unborn child at a certain point because the mother feels the quickening, yeah. which is what it... So could you open that up for us? Brian, the 
the spectrum of what conservative and liberal states might do. The second half of this conversation will be released next, and I hope you'll join us. My name is Lucas Weeks, and the conversation today was with Tim Bailey and Brian Bailey. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash out of our minds. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.